Chapter 16 Understanding the World Around Me I spent time trying to understand the minutiae behind the technology I was using, uncovering the source code, trying to understand the logic behind concepts that ran on magic instead of science. Some of my findings highlighted the genius and innovation used. The computer used magic arrays and formations that cast low-level scrying illusion and mind magic spells, mana batteries, and crystals used enchantments etched in microscopic detail, mana-conducting metals like mithril, silver, and adamantium were etched into the crystal, creating a magic circuitry that allowed the crystal to store magical energy and connect to manufactured ley lines, a ley line construct that permeated the ground and by raising towers were capable of being broadcast and connected via airwaves. This network of interconnecting energies that crisscrossed the territories was faction-specific. The Seelie and Unseelie each created an ether framework and was specific to them. There was only one place where the two disparate energy fields were allowed to interact. Only one specific place. The joint capital of the sea. Even here, firewalls, restrictions, and protocols were so deeply layered and entrenched that only those ranked with the highest security would ever gain access to the confluence of data from both sides. Optic cables, sound waves, and satellite positioning instruments were replaced by an intricate and densely packed grid pattern that blanketed the planet in multi-tiers. Relay towers, what I would consider mage towers, were built and maintained at physical leyline intersections. The energies were then siphoned off by magical formations. Each tower had its own unique vibration frequency that allowed it to connect to the continent-wide system. These unique energies allowed for the towers to broadcast in tessellating formations that allowed for the interconnecting of energies and assigned sui generis tied to rank. Enchanters, inscriptionists, and formation masters were this universe's physicists, engineers, and scientists. They researched new ways to integrate metal inlays in the progression of innovation that mirror technology found on Earth. Of course, there were other fields of study that greatly contributed. Bioconformists that worked closely with nature and created trees and crops that grew not only food required, to sustain a multi-billion population, but plants designed to provide unique products. Fruits and nuts provided the metals used in building and construction. A regrowable, sustainable crop that had been bioengineered using magic instead of mining to meet the demands of market forces without destroying the land or the need for pollutant heavy industries like strip mining. Formation arrays were deployed in deep waters that encouraged crystal reefs to grow, allowing natural crystals to be ignored and those crystals needed for commerce to be farmed from artificial reefs. Professions consisted of the typical RPG craft classes, blacksmiths, tailors, alchemists, and enchanters, but these classes, especially masterclass craftsmen, were able to specialize as they advanced. Skimmers were a product that blended the skills of blacksmiths leather workers, enchanters, inscriptionists, and formation masters. 
a blending of skill that allowed for technology to rival anything found on Earth. Research and development may have been a typical gnomish preoccupation in games I'd played, but the sea took tinkering and innovation to new heights. The ability to examine microscopic particles was enhanced with magic and spells. Those highly skilled in perception were completely capable of replacing any of the tools of man needed for imaging. X-ray machines, MRI, microscopes, all these devices were easily replaced with a well-formed and targeted spell. Blacksmiths had evolved some of the most interesting skill sets, I thought. Even if those skills were not exactly what I expected, certainly they were capable of crafting individual weapons, but they also had adapted skills to allow for and use mass production and assembly line techniques. In order to mass produce metal sheets that were used in construction or fabrication, a single blacksmith had to be able to command and direct an entire labor force. A grandmaster blacksmith was often also a grandmaster enchanter and grandmaster botanist. Armor wasn't forged so much as grown. Blacksmiths encouraged metal-producing plants to grow in weaves and patterns that allowed for more efficient inlays of enchantments, precious metals, and gems. They created plant life that was almost a work of art, plants that had the ability to form a lattice of veins and mana currents. These features allowed ease of adaptability when working to create final products that were capable of growing and repairing themselves. A great suit of armor adapted as much as it protected, and when damaged, not only repaired itself but reinforced the areas that were damaged. In essence, learning how to improve each time damage was taken. Ancient battle suits existed that were artifact level, armors that had been grown for aeons. The sea had an advantage because of their long lives and system. They were able to earn ranks in multiple crafts, and a truly talented individual might be a master class in five or six disparate fields. Craft classes also included support roles, merchants that were skilled in buying, selling, and anticipating market demands. A service industry that includes stylists, maids, waiters, and assistants. And bureaucrats or businessmen that ran factories while also dealing with the mechanics of actual government. It was within these classes that you would find major domos, seneschals, secretaries, and business tycoons. It made sense. Why require a lord that has spent his energies and time learning how to fight to protect his domains, to micromanage his fife. How much knowledge would they really have about garbage removal, street repair, and educational programs? Better to fill these duties with individuals that had been system-tested and promoted. Species tended to fill roles that suited their talents. Brownies made great tailors, chefs, and household staff. Leprechauns often filled roles as merchants and bankers. Sprites and fairies, because of their small size, were especially suited towards enchantments and formation creation, especially those on the micro level. Kelpie made great farmers, both on land and in water. And Seely and Unseely often became bards, fighters, healers, and artists. There was crossover, of course. 
but historically, each species chose skills and classes based on tradition. One of the other discoveries I made that excited me was that dungeons did exist. Dungeons didn't work exactly how I thought they should. They did allow dungeon divers to farm resources and gain experience in a controlled and regulated fashion, but the sea had developed dungeon farming into a business enterprise. The most efficient, mass-produced items were constructed in dungeons. Factories and workshops built and placed in safe areas allowed for dungeon resources to be funneled directly to those business enterprises. Adventurers and guild members were more often corporate employees and stooges. Popular items that required more manufacturing resources, like skimmers, could monopolize an entire dungeon's production. Three-dimensional holograms of some of the dungeons reminded me more of dwarven cities than dungeons. Great vats of bubbling and heated metals, filling molds, with conveyor lines pounding and forming these new smelted materials into usable shapes and forms. Although dungeons had been monetized, there still existed smaller instances that allowed for parties and solo adventurers to train. Occasionally, new dungeons formed in inconvenient places and needed to be destroyed. There were even funny anecdotes of spontaneous dungeons forming. St. Crispin type speeches mocked by demonic rifts. Ascension celebrations translocated to Mad Hatter tea parties. An entire field of research was devoted to trying to understand why and how dungeons formed. The most popular theory that they were constructs created by system to relieve environmental pressure because they always formed at a nexus where magic pooled. Too much bloodshed, too much magical ether, too much wealth. The system reacted to pressures both societal and environmental as a release mechanism, almost always creating an environment that responded in perfect opposition to surrounding variables. Most of my surfing allowed me to discover the wonders this world had to offer, the innovation and magical that made the impossible a part of everyday life for most citizens. Unfortunately, there was a dark side to Talon. Slavery and serfdom existed. There were no laws in place to protect people from being forced into those positions and from abuse of those that found themselves in these situations with no choice. Because of how long-lived the sea were, lifelong contracts were rare, but they did exist. In practice, every slave and serf should be freed within a specific prescribed period of time. But in reality, Penalties and game-playing often resulted in individuals trapped by the whims of politics and wealth in perpetual slavery, unable to free themselves, and in isolated cases, their children. They became property instead of people. There seemed to be no real redress for individuals harmed from those ranked that ruled. This society was based on archaic principles, Rule of law was replaced with might makes right. There was only a bare-bones system of jurisprudence on a planetary scale, and none that allowed for litigation between Seelie and Unseelie. Interplanetary courts did exist for member worlds and pantheons, but those courts dealt more with tort, with very little jurisprudence being devoted to criminal law. Still, what protections member pantheons enjoyed was better than nothing. Talum had little access, 
almost completely barred because of the insane policies of the Sealy and Unsealy monarchies and their refusal to make the policy choices and concessions required for membership. Civil liberties and protections were not even ideals mentioned between the sea. Torture was practiced by both sides, which is how Carrot was conceived, his birth Sealy mother trapped and restrained by his Unsealy father. The propaganda of the Sealy as creatures of light and beauty starkly contrasted with the truth. The light has its own evils, and powerful beings that justify their actions, motivations, and prejudices can be far more damning and destructive than any creature of the night. Crusades and pogroms were actions often taken by those who believed they were just and righteous, and no greater evil existed than to slaughter or enslave others for the cause of good. Utilitarianism made evil. Just as the Seelie were not all good, the Unseelie were not all bad. They were capable of compassion, love, and selflessness. They were just more honest about their actions. Strange in a way, considered creatures of the night, they refused to hide their actions. Maybe it was because the ugly and the monstrous species members, Slaw, Goblins, and night flyers had no way to hide the ugly truths of who they were and how they behaved behind pretty facades or smiling lies. They were monstrous. They could live their lives behind illusion and subterfuge, but they refused to renounce who they were, taking pride instead of the qualities that made them monstrous. Because they refused to hide what they were behind facades and conformity, their feats of goodness and mercy were often ignored and trivialized. You would think that the dungeons of Talum would be populated by the creatures of Seelie and Unseelie, monstrous subspecies and factions that would give rise to nightmares and horrors. Instead, these spaces were more often populated by mythological beings from other pantheons. Undead creatures from Hades, skinwalkers from Native American folklore, Egyptian and Norse creatures of myth and nightmare that were woven into the fabric of universal constants, assembled horrors that spanned and encompassed a multiverse collective conscious of myths and legends. Every species had stories, stories about how civilizations that had created fire did so to fight back the darkness, creating light to combat the nightmares and monsters of the unknown. The dungeons of Talum were populated by the nightmares that permeated the memories, which societies had fought and conquered. The most surprising discovery I made was that the Celia and Unseelie were a declining species. Of the billions and billions of individuals that populated Talum, the Celia and Unseelie combined made up only 500 million individuals. Births were stagnating and was a large reason for this decline. But the biggest reason? A quirk of nature exclusive to the sea they were able to fade. It was a phenomenon that affected all sea, but for some reason, the Seelie and Unseelie were especially susceptible. At some point, the years and years of their existence became too much. Ennui, the sameness of sea society, century after century allowed for the stagnation of social paradigms. Those that could not bear the sameness simply gave up. Nothing new inspired them. They became bored with daily living and allowed themselves to fade away, to cease to exist. 
slowly becoming ghosts in the ether. Until eventually, barely a whisper in the wind, even these incorporeal and ephemeral forms dissipated, and they ceased to exist. The sound of the suite's main door opening and the sound of voices in discussion interrupted my research. Mentally opening system, time, I realized I had been researching and skimming information for hours. My stomach began rumbling, and I realized I hadn't eaten. In fact, I hadn't eaten anything since I'd been reborn. Shutting down the desktop crystals, I decided to see who was in the outer room. I wasn't going to be able to learn everything about the world in one afternoon, and I was hungry. It was time to scrounge up something for dinner. I wasn't surprised to find Cedric. I had, after all, given the front desk permission to give him access, but the two individuals with him I'd never met before. A stylishly dressed young woman, hair pulled back fiercely and tied into a delicate quaff, was listening intently to the conversation between Cedric and another Seely. Stiff, formal, with movements exacting in nature, his mannerisms and vocal tonality conveyed a proper, even stuffy aura. Cedric? I asked, interrupting his conversation. What's going on? Your Highness, he replied, visibly startled by the interruption. Allow me to introduce Brianne White and Basil Henry. I was informed at the front desk that you had requested assistance with the candidates that would be applying to join and responding to the world quest. Squire White is a ranked expert class scribe with high levels of organization abilities. Brianne is a journeyman level assistant. She should be able to help organize potential applicants' information for you and set up appointments to interview once she understands your criteria. Sir Henry is a knight-ranked masterclass diplomat, expert-class merchant, journeyman-class chef, journeyman-class blacksmith, and journeyman-class tailor. Sir Henry is a master-level butler, well-versed in maintaining and organising a working staff of over 100 people. The front desk asked me to stress that Jenny was responsible for checking their backgrounds and references, and if there was an issue, to discuss those problems with her. Sounds like they intend for Jenny to bear all the blame if they aren't suited. Only fair for Jenny to take all the credit if they are then, I replied smugly. What the front desk isn't aware of is that Jenny helped raise me. I consider the ties that bind us, her and I, as filial in nature. She has always been one of my mothers. If she went to the trouble of finding and recommending you, I would never be so ungrateful as to ignore her suggestion, I promised. Welcome, and thank you for agreeing to work with me. I'm not sure how many people are waiting, or what reasons they have to see me, so Brienne, first thing tomorrow, please begin organizing that crowd into lists. Try to separate them into valid reasons for a meeting. Those wanting to join my house or looking for work get top priority, and I will begin seeing them immediately. Please schedule those with management and combat professions at the earliest opportunity. I need my own guards and advisors as soon as possible, I said, beginning the process of organizing the next day's events. Royal-ranked individuals and politicians can wait. It probably isn't politically astute to make them wait. I'm sure they are used to being fond over, so you can play up my ignorance. 
Let them think I'm unaware of how I should act based on my new rank. Stress my ignorance and naivety, my complete lack of understanding of royal prerogatives and protocols. After all, these skills are not standard and automatic when reaching a new rank, and don't come included as part of a new skill set. If they're left with the impression that I'm a backward provincial, someone utterly lacking in manners and insight, a simple, naive individual, easily distracted, even better, I concluded. Sir Henry, I would like you to sit in when I interview individuals, hoping for positions related to daily household functions. I hope to eventually hire the entire support staff you will need to maintain the fife efficiently. I'll have to start bare bones, but I'd like to find talented individuals that might become heads of their departments as and when I expand. And if I actually establish a fife, I concluded, still unsure of what my future plans would be. I trust Jenny, but I'd still like to know who you are and what your expectations are before we get to work. I'd like you both to consider making this temporary assignment permanent. I know this all looks a bit slapdash and things will certainly be frenzied and bare bones for a bit. But that's what happens when you become a prince with no warning. I continued, smiling broadly, happy to notice they smiled with me. Join me for dinner so that we can get to know more about each other, I said. Who and what exactly are you looking for? You mentioned guards and management. What rank are you hoping to recruit? And are you hiring as labor or recruiting as members of your house? Brienne asked. I plan on recruiting any truly talented people. I find as members of my house. Hiring is possible, but contracts and loyalty oaths will be required. I know it will be impossible to weed out all spies, but recent events have demonstrated that certain factions have aligned with Olympians. You might want to consider that before you join my house permanently. Cedric and I recently discovered that other pantheons are active on Talum. We have no idea who is backing these factions or what their endgame is, but I'm sure I haven't heard the last of them. Further, I have no intention of pledging to either Seelie or Unseelie monarchies. I'm sure that decision is going to generate its own set of problems and headaches. So any person willing to join my house needs to be made aware they will be required to make the strongest oath possible. Carrot, remind me to discuss with you what oaths I can use. And any ceremonies or requirements to accept retainers, vassals, and house members, I said. Also, let's discuss if my actions are tantamount to creating a new faction. In particular, I'm looking for people that can fill roles of seneschal, major domo, advisors knowledgeable in taxes, interplanetary law, land acquisition, fife management, guards, including those with ranks and experience to train and outfit guards knowledge brokers, a diplomatic way of saying spies, and support staff. I doubt we'll stay in Lord Kell's fife long, a week, maybe two, depending on how recruitment is going. So make sure anyone I interview is aware and willing to travel and relocate. I'm less than pleased with the amenities of Lord Kell and his lands. Those with families must have plans and living arrangements for family members until I have established a base and built or bought suitable housing to house and relocate family members. Slaves and serfs that meet my requirements are acceptable. Even criminals may apply. 
I'll decide their status based on the details of their crimes. Cedric, I will task you with background research for now. Try and find out anything you can about the applicants after Brienne has supplied you with a list of names. Prince de Belleros, Cedric spoke up, interrupting my diatribe. Lord Kell left a message requesting your presence for tonight's dinner. He was hoping to host a banquet in your honour and apologise to you. Thank you, Cedric. Sir Henry? I said, recognising I would have to meet with Lord Kell at least once more. Contact Lord Kell's staff and arrange a more suitable time to attend. Any time in the next few days is fine, but attending a banquet tonight without my staff or guards in place is out of the question. Of course, my lord, Sir Henry agreed. Perhaps the last day before your departure? There are certain accoutrements and protocols that must be met. Certainly, at a minimum, a tailor to fashion uniforms and heraldic devices for staff would be required before any formal gathering would be possible. Good. Let's plan to leave in a fortnight, then. That also gives us time to purchase any supplies we might need, and outfit those I accept to my house. It also gives me some breathing room to dodge the political pitfalls that are certain to crop up. Where are we going? Have you decided on our destination? Cedric asked. Duke Adoween City first. I owe him at least this small courtesy. The capital eventually. I can't put off meeting the Seely and Unseely royals for long. Where we'll head once that is done, I have an idea. But it really depends on what happens in the capital. And Cedric? I added. Plan for a leisurely trip from here to the capital. I've never left Fife Kell before, and I want to take my time and enjoy the sights and people along the way. Traveling via mounts will allow for this, he informed me. Mounts? I wondered aloud. Why would anyone still use mounts? An affectation of high rank and class, Henry informed me. It allows you to show off your wealth and the success of the breeding programs and stables you own. Only those with culture and money maintain a stable of pure-blooded animals that can be used as mounts. Skimmers and haulers are mainly used in cities, by lesser nobility and ranks, and for transporting goods and services. Anyone who is anyone knows that maintaining and using mounts to travel is the thing to do. It's become another way for the rich and powerful to highlight the difference between them and lesser sea. Sir Henry finished. But mounts do have one bonus skimmers don't. They are often battle-trained and hardened and can help attack and defend if you meet up with ambushes or monsters, Cedric interjected. It seems like an unnecessary expense and hardship for support staff and those without mounts, I suggested. Support staff and those individuals without mounts usually travel ahead, Sir Henry supplied. They find rooms in inns when available or set up camps when not. Haulers are used for transporting these people, along with any items or supplies. I agreed to consider using mounts to travel, before we turned the discussion to one of the contracts staff would be required to sign. Both Henry and Brienne had experience and training in the matter, but there was no need for specialized knowledge. Contracts were straightforward on Talim. There wasn't a tangle of legalese that made understanding what you were agreeing almost impossible. You didn't need a law degree to look for hidden clauses or loopholes. Since the C society largely espoused jurisprudence 
There was no body of tort or criminal law to wade through. Our contract was a one-page document. I agreed to pay a set amount for services, while they agreed to provide services. Finally, both sides agreed that any discussions or proprietary information would remain confidential. There was no need for archaic signing contracts in blood, no legion of lawyers to decipher and protect the rights of either side. I did have to affix and seal both contracts with my ranked imprimatur. Since I hadn't commissioned one yet, I had the hotel supply me with an ink pad, using my fingerprint as a seal. I channeled a drop of my magic into the document. System announcement. You have created your first contract. Skill, bureaucracy, apprentice level gained. I refused to discuss oaths with them. Unlike Cedric's declaration, there was no need to hurry the process. We had just met, and I was uncertain of their skills and their loyalty. It made more sense to get to know each other over the next few days and then revisit the topic. We did continue to discuss travel arrangements. Their environmental programs and culture was based on a respect and a belief that each individual had a duty to protect nature. These opinions fostered policies that limited the scope and reach of civilization. One of the interesting facts I'd unearthed during my research earlier had been the actual size of Talum. The size of Jupiter, Talum was 12 times as large as Earth. That meant there was a lot of unclaimed and unspoiled lands. Once Henry explained that roads and highways were an artificiality only found in cities, using mounts to travel made sense. The sea had combined a mix of old world sensibilities and affectations combined with new world practicalities. I rather liked the idea, which made me wonder if my rank was influencing my personality. How long will it take to get to the Adoin's Fife riding mounts? I wondered. It depends on what we encounter, Cedric answered. The lands between fiefs and cities can be dangerous. Wild animals, hostile sea, and naturally occurring obstacles all can cause delays. With no delays, the trip can take a few days. It is best to plan for the worst. In that case, planning for three weeks may be wise. Adoin has portal facilities, so once we arrive there, we can arrive at the capital instantly. That leg of our journey should pose no problems. It would just be a matter of when you are ready to move on. After you've paid your respects and been fawned over by Duke Adoin and his family, Cedric joked. All right, find out the expense for suitable mounts, I instructed Cedric. And Brienne, find out if any of the people I'll be interviewing own mounts of their own. This enterprise was looking to be very expensive. I'd managed to establish a line of credit and had substantial funds on hand, but I was beginning to think this prince rank was going to hemorrhage gold. Don't forget, you were awarded Thom's possessions. I'm pretty sure he maintained a stable. And he had some Kelpies, if I remember correctly, Cedric reminded me. I was glad for the reminder. I'd been awarded five Kelpies as spoils when dealing with Thom, but after the conversation I'd overheard between Lord Cal and Lady Patricia, I didn't have much faith in actually attaining those additional rewards, even if they were system-assigned. Henry? I sighed, rubbing my forehead, as I tried to ease the headache that was beginning to form. I wasn't happy to discover that the Seelie were susceptible to tension headaches. When you're contacting Lord Cal's staff, 
See if you can get a detailed list of any mounts, servants, serfs, slaves, or retainers that Thom may have owned and are now mine by right. Brienne, coordinate with Cedric and Sir Henry to set up a time for me to meet those people or claim any animals I may have inherited. As I was gathering my thoughts, wondering what else I should be doing, a knock at the door interrupted any further planning or discussion. Cedric drew his sword quickly when the door opened without permission. He only moved to relax when I recognized Jenny pushing a cart laden with food and beverages and greeted her. I thought you might be hungry by now. It is getting to be about time for dinner, Jenny explained, as she set about sorting the dishes and placing prepared foods in the dining room. She was efficient and quick, and of course, knew about Brienne and Henry, so had arranged settings for all of us. Enough work for now, she commanded, ushering us into the room and preparing individual servings. She didn't seem to care about our likes and dislikes when making her selections, but the sights and smells reminded my stomach that it had been sorely neglected. Comfort food would be the polite term. She served dishes that were filling and delicious. Pretentious novel cuisine may not have translated to this universe, but even if it had, Jenny was having none of it. These were not small sampling portions that left one hungry again the moment you left the table. These were hearty portions of meat, vegetables, stews, and bread. The bread was what attracted my attention. There was just something about the smell of hot, fresh-baked bread that soothed the soul and comforted the spirit. I had no idea what I was eating, something else to discuss with Carrot when I had a chance, but the meat tasted like the best steak I'd ever had. The stew reminded me of something I'd find in an old Irish pub, and the ale was thick, dark, and had just the slightest hints of honey and floral notes of juniper berries reminiscent of gin. Was it a meal fit for a king? Maybe not, but it certainly suited this prince.